Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. Today we're talking about the exceptionally big, wide world of the late broadcaster Alan Wicker, ahead of an upcoming mini festival of his work at London's BFI Southbank on the 7th of August. Alan Wicker was a broadcasting colossus who bestrode the globe during a career that spanned six decades and took him to every conceivable corner of the globe to make TV documentaries that ranged from the sublime to the ridiculous via the meticulous. Wicker's films spoke truth to power. He interviewed dictators such as Haiti's Papadoc de Valier and Paraguay's Alfredo Stresner, as he also tried to fathom the popularity of the Miss World competition. Yes, go figure. What there always was in Wicker's films and radio work was excellent journalism, a disarmingly charming yet centrally steely interview style and some wonderful old school tailoring. The title sequence of his beloved long-running Wicker's World series saw him typically bowing in Kyoto, being bestowed with a lay in Honolulu, admiring a sunbather on Copacabana Beach and showing his battered and bruised passport as he boarded Concord. Maybe he lived on Concord. He typically clocked up 100,000 miles a year to bring his viewers wonderful stories and technicolour characters from everywhere. They don't make them like that anymore. So on the show to discuss the world of Wicker are Dick Fiddy, the BFI's TV archive programmer, and Jane Ray from The Wickers, a charity set up to support budding documentary filmmakers. Many respectable Houstonians would sooner leave home without their trousers than their revolvers. They'd feel unbearably vulnerable in a land where it's always been natural for a man to go for his gun to defend himself the best he can. All right, now we're going to go back down the line. Let's draw a picture of Alan Wicker, who we kind of think of today as the ultimate in old school sort of broadcasting quality, I suppose. Yes. What stands out? That was the disguise that he wanted you to believe in. Mm. I mean, he was a maverick dressed in his uniform of being, as you say, the genial English gent mm. with a, a kind smile and a gentle manner and a killer instinct. But he was, at heart, a maverick journalist. And uh, he had always wanted to be a writer from the word go. Life was interrupted for him by World War II, but he went to Europe and covered the... He was at Anzio, wasn't he? He was at Anzio, yeah. and it, it hugely marked him. He was running, at that time, the Army Film and Photography Unit, and he had 40 men under him who were there to tell the story of the Second World War in Europe, and so he learnt to combine his skill as a writer with his skill behind the camera with no telephoto lens but to leap out, get the shot, get it processed fast and accurate and get it sent out. And that was a skill that I think honed him and uh, defined him. He then went on to become correspondent for the Korean War. He went missing for a few days. He got the um, delight of reading his own obituary. He decided it was way too short (laughs) and he needed to do more in life. Time to catch up, yeah. (laughs) He became a diplomatic correspondent, hated it because the only travelling he was then doing was on the number nine bus to the Foreign Office. So he started writing fiction stories behind the scenes in um, for BBC Radio and that's where Alistair Milne mm-hmm. discovered him and put him on The Tonight Show and realised that Alan's ability to be fast and accurate was also combined with great on-air flair and a, a really witty sense of humour. A perfect 
pencil portrait of Alan Wicker. And as you say, it was that, that break on The Tonight Show that kind of that got him started and where we saw his signature style. I mean, Dick, as, a, as the sort of archivist at the BFI, there are, you know, there are so many great broadcasters and, and bits of film jostling for position in that. How does Alan Wicker stand out? When I was a child, he always stood out because he had this sort of... I loved his mix of... The way he was a good journalist, his mixture of the subjective and the objective in his films was such a great thing. And I'm always sort of... It kind of rubbed off on people like Jonathan Meads, I, I feel, people like that. that sort of This autodidact instinct was, was great in him. But anyway, as an archivist, what, what jumps out from the archive for you? Wicker comes to television at a fascinating time, especially for British television. In 55, ITV started, and they were brash and in your face. Mm. And they actually made the, the BBC think about how it was presenting programmes. BBC television had followed on from BBC radio. It looked to the radio for its lead. It was a very formal service. You know, newsreaders wore dinner jackets and they were very obsequious when they come to interview. We, were wearing, like we were wearing black tie around the table. <laughs> yeah. like, obviously, tell our readers. You would have our been. listeners. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you would have been at one time. Yeah, yeah. And um, so... Uh, I think Alastair Milne is one of the people at the BBC who is responsible for trying to bring the BBC into the 20th century by making them less formal. And Alan, in many ways, is, is, has the brashness and, and the um, the distinctiveness of um, of an ITV mm-hmm. review at the time. Um, ITV had probably the first television investigative journalist with Dan Fast, and they had these people that were a little more flippant, a little ruder, if you like, than fast, other people Faster and looser, yeah. And uh, what, what Alan did... Um, he managed to camouflage some quite searching questions in with urbane charm, wearing his blazer, being friendly, having a certain sense of charm, but also, I think, that sense of informality, which in many ways he invented that in that style of, of travelling around and talking to people and getting that close to him. And I think because of the different type of people he'd met in the war and the, 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 the different classes he's encountered... It came naturally to him. Mm. So it, it wasn't an act. He was interested in people from all levels. And uh, that, that makes for fascinating television. He is the perfect person to go abroad on your behalf. And remember, he was doing it at a time when very few people in the UK could do that sort of travelling. Obviously, there was package tours locally to Europe, but the, the far-flung places of the world, television was your window onto that world, and he was the person that took you through it. Yeah, and it is. It's that idea of you always got a sense of of his curiosity in these things. He wasn't reading questions off a, off a carefully concealed clipboard or something to one just off camera. It was, it was his, a natural. Uh, there was a right. sort of a brilliance about it, it's a very cool brilliance. Characteristic curiosity. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, one wonders how maybe you, you you both can shine a light on it. The commissioning process for these films, because it was a lot of instinctive. It seemed like, well, let's try and get an interview with a dictator. Let's just try to let's go behind the scenes at the Miss World competition. I mean, there, as, as part of your festival, the um, what is the it's the it's the one following the gay community in, on the west coast um, of of the United right. States. It's yes. called, I can't remember what the title of it is. It's Sorry, it's called. The, the Lord, Lord is my shepherd, shepherd and he knows I'm gay. That's it. They <laughs> sing in unison. <laughs> a serving chief petty officer at the San Diego United States Naval Air Station, Edward S. Brendan, is about to marry a hotel receptionist, Joseph L. Brown. 
so there were, it was always that thing of the flippant mixed in with the with the the serious and and that was a sort of that 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 film about um, gay people in California was, was presumably pretty pioneering at the time. Oh, it was. I mean, television likes to think that they discovered uh, homosexuality in around nineteen eighty six. I think when there was a same sex kiss on the on East, or EastEnders. Oh, was it? Yeah. Back in. 1973, <laughs> Alan had innumerable same-sex kisses on Saturday Are you give us the 40 men that were after him in Anzio. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, so he was a pioneer. Uh, he was, a, as I said, he's a journalist at heart and uh, had a, a fascination with the paradox of being human you know uh, he loved to travel yes but he was always about the people and he was scrupulous about balance but when it came to him covering a same-sex in-church blessing and to him being interviewed very vehemently by a couple of gay women who thought that he was being a bit sexist and they took him to task on this and they had a wonderful conversation and everybody hugged and made up. I mean, this was incredibly pioneering for that time and we forget what an extraordinary maverick he was. I mean, he, as I understand it, was the first person to interview somebody identifying as being transgender. He was one of the early people to, in a entertainment television documentary slot, cover a story that he'd, he'd found when he was covering the Kentucky horse race and he thought hang on a moment this story here is about another kind of race Mm. it's about a form of apartheid which was meaning that if you were black you weren't allowed to buy in uh, nice white areas and so he covered that story uh, changed um, the angle of his lens and moved it off into another direction and um, all the time you know he's he's Elders and betters at the at the BBC were were having kittens over his ability to to be to draw in massive audiences, you know, um, soap opera type audiences mm. of fifteen million or something, right? absolutely yeah. and yeah. above, more than than Coronation Street, and and bring really uh, fresh controversial subjects into their their living rooms and. He, but he always went for the the multi point of view on any subject. He didn't. He was not banging an agenda yeah. ever. I, yeah. I think a key point is is the way he treated his subjects. Because if you take homosexuality for just one example, there've been programs on television about it in the fifties and the sixties, but they were very prurient. They took this view. They they were they were hardline um, that these people were outsiders or eccentrics. There's a series about people in trouble, and one of it is about homosexuality. You know, as mm. if that's somehow so, yes, and it's just and, another sin. And I think, yeah. Um, yeah. As, as James is saying, later on in in the eighties, when uh, when television, uh, if you like, discovered homosexuality, what we mean by that is they discovered taking a much more sympathetic view of it. But Alan had already done that, and he'd done it with so many of his subjects that he wasn't prurient about it. That he he. Did go there and and offer quite a 
quite a wide-ranging, often very sympathetic view to, to things that would have been considered very, very weird at one mm. time. Yeah, it's an interesting point because he, uh, uh, later in his career, and, and actually as early as, is it, was it 1972, the, the, the Wicker Island Monty Python sketch where the five guys are all, all, all in a blazer and the, with the moustache and the trademark sort of lenses. And there was a sort of, there was a sort of cosiness, but he, he wasn't, I mean, his broadcasting wasn't cosy. He would, he would go, he would do some interviews on luxury yachts, but then ask some pretty tough questions and ask if people were happy and get some fantastic answers out Absolutely. of people. He was never kind of comfy. He was never comfy with being comfy in his broadcasting. Yeah. He did, he did a, a programme on uh, divorce, which again was very mm. pioneering. It, it ended up in changing the law on divorce. It ended up changing the law that you had to have, uh, you had to prove fault which led to untold misery and and suicide. So, yes, I absolutely agree. It's a paradox about Alan that he came over as this proper establishment figure. And yet, and yet what he did was open up a whole new world into people's living rooms. It said that he was so popular that he actually helped develop a new piece of furniture, which is the coffee table, so people could have TV dinners. <laughs> he does flirt a little, your husband. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, and I like to sort of be there to keep an eye on what's going on. Why do you believe that the Baron loves you? <laughs> uh, well, first of all, he stayed married to me for seven years, nearly. And secondly, um, he told me so, and he said that he loved me because I was very ordinary, which I interpreted to mean that I wasn't neurotic. And so we agreed, and it suits us both. He was very distinctive, and he had a distinctive style. And because he wrote his own scripts, and he he, he was had a he great ability... He research as yeah, well. Mm. He had a great ability to speak to camera without referring to notes, so it looked so natural, but it was distinctive. And because of that... He was easy to imitate once someone had picked up on those mannerisms, mm. which is why the Pythons, all of the Pythons imitated. But it was a loving pastiche. Yeah, wasn't uh, it? absolutely. They were great fans. Yeah, and yeah. I think all the, no one ever imitated him without there wasn't a huge amount of warmth. Stanley mm. Baxter did it. Other people did it. Um, you know, Mike Yarwood probably did it. The, the point is, he had these distinctions that you could you could find, but a lot of the a lot of this was to do with inventing the grammar. Inventing the grammar of the way those programmes worked. And it, and it's obvious that if you don't have a distinctive style, if people aren't imitating you, it's because you're bland and you're not getting this, this point of view across. And that's, so I think it's always, it's always a great accolade if you, if you do find yourself the victim of a spoofery. Absolutely. I'm sure, he was, I'm sure he was flattered by the Pythons doing it. And we'll talk, obviously, about the Pythons later in, in, vis-à-vis the, the festival itself, because you've obviously got Michael Palin on it and, and all the rest of it. But I wanted to talk about that, the grammar. Dick. I'd love to get your reading on this as, as the archivist at the BFI, Dick. The, the grammar of the programmes, how they're put together, that those, those deceptively searching interviews, um, brave interviews, and making it appear so laconic. But then with these these kind of asides or these these voiceovers, which were a lot more subjective, I suppose, or a lot more kind of they, they were you know they were they were filling things in. But how were those things put together? I think tons and tons of planning. Mm. These things aren't easy to put together. If you want, you know, a lot of these people almost have a carte blanche refusal to talk to anyone because they don't need to. And I think as the programs went on, as he became more famous and better known. 
those people felt safer in his hands. They'd seen the programmes they'd done. They knew it wasn't any tabloid hatchet job that he was going to come along there. And I think also because he was subjective, I think very often he let the the stories speak for themselves. He let people um, talk about themselves in a way that perhaps he, even he himself hadn't made up his mind until he'd finished the interview and, and then he went back over it to do the voiceover. Because I think he let the subjects tell their own story. He wasn't trying to push people into an answer. There wasn't. There were only leading. Well, there were there were good questions. There weren't leading questions, I suppose. Yeah. And the grammar was also linked to the technology. Having come through the war and been in the film and photography unit, he loved to get the other side of the lens. So he was often often directing himself. And any new bit of kit came along, he'd think, "Oh, what can I do with this?" So cameras getting lighter and lighter, handheld. Great. Okay, I'll spend the night uh, in a cop car in San Francisco and I'll interview people, not in a studio like this, but as they're bashing down the door in this alleged drug den or interview people as they're trying on jewellery or uh, peeling the potatoes. No, he got people to open up in this way and he was constantly on the move. When he uh, wanted to uh, keep travelling and not having to come back to the studio to edit the film to get it out and then to go off again, he use all sorts of new ways to get footage back to London so that he could just keep travelling and, you know, get the next story. So podcasts, I mean, he would have loved all that. Yeah, I I think that's a truism about those people that have huge careers in television. They have to embrace the new technology and they have to want to be be part of that story. If you look at, at David Attenborough and his huge career, you know, starting off in black and white with with cumbersome handheld cameras and now the, they have fantastic digital wonderland that, he, mm. that his programmes are and you, you have to embrace that te- technology and very often it's driven by the technology you know you, you, you suddenly got colour and that's that's a whole new Wicker's world. That yeah, is, you know, it's a, it's a whole new look to it. When you when you mentioned Jane about the peeling of potatoes, I thought immediately of the one of the films that's in in your festival where he goes to the Hutt River Province Principality yes. in Western Australia, and which is it's sort of self self invented. Yeah, little fiefdom, kingdom. Yes, Princess Sheila, I think. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> Tell us about this one, because this, this is the sort of thing that we'd be familiar with nowadays if Louis Theroux was doing it. This was done in 1972, this film. Yes, uh, Alan... Uh, stepped uh, off the plane in a new principality, which had been... He was wearing a safari suit for this one. He was, no tie. It was all a bit shocking. And Mm. we knew it was uh, khaki because we were into uh, (laughs) early days of colour by then. Um, And he was fascinated. One of Alan's favourite questions was to ask people about their attitude to paying tax. And self-styled Prince Leonard had decided that he was fed up with paying his taxes to the Australian government, so he would succeed his his farm as a, a new territory. And they came up with banknotes and stamps, and uh, they made Alan, while he was there, ambassador to England. Uh, they gave him <laughs> it's a, a very nice ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Alan looked uh, duly respectful. Yeah. And this was, again, the kind of story that Alan adored, this kind of human eccentricity mm. and an attempt to 
defeat the system. He loved meeting Mavericks. He loved meeting uh, Butch Cassidy's sister. It was one of his favourite interviews. And he also, he loved playing football with a, 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 a group of nuns who had never had a man, not even a doctor had been allowed to, a uh, male doctor allowed to, to breach their portals and many there had never seen a car, but somehow Alan managed to charm his way in. Let's talk about the look then. Um, we've talked about the, the wonderful voiceover and the flavour of those films, mixing the kind of the, the, the seemingly seemingly kind of light with the with the heavy and the, and the big issues with with all that international travel and all the rest of it. A lot of glamour, a lot of beautiful people and beautiful places in those films. What about Alan Wicker's look? We mentioned the safari suit. Man, he looked good in a safari suit. Uh, <laughs> how part when you talk about people, we, we talked about people being pastiched and how that was a sign of success. I mean, part of that part of that dick was his look as well, wasn't it? Yeah, I think he he would always say that the blazer that he often wore was was really useful. I mean, you can wear a blazer to the pub or you can wear it to a, a very fashionable party in the evening. You know, it just it seemed to be classless for him, but it was it was always neat. It, you always looked good in a blazer and you know you have two or three blazers you could mm-hmm. you could it didn't matter how crumpled your shirt was underneath you know yeah. always made for him by the same man who had a little shop in Mayfair for many 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 years they became very very good friends and the one secret that I was not allowed to know was whether Alan's chest size got any bigger or smaller over the years <laughs> okay that's that's why you pay a lot of money to some tailors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Your chest size never changes. Yeah, exactly, you just stitch the old label back in. Please. Yeah. <laughs> and I did mention. I mean, that that was. It is that thing of um, turning up to interview people in the sort of vernacular clobber of now doesn't sort of seem to have the same thing as you said you know it was the, it, he, everyone got the same treatment unless he unless he was on a ranch in australia then you got the safari suit or by the victoria falls or something when I mean, it was too hot to be wearing the wool blazer but other than that it was part and parcel it also almost meant that everyone was getting a the, the wicker treatment the fair trial you know the interest the curiosity they weren't yeah. No. Good point. Yeah, it's a yeah. kind of it's a way of, way of enforcing your personality on it. But having said that, he was very he was a phenomenal interviewer in that his questions were short and sharp, and he yes. he didn't interrupt his guests. He allowed them to the killer pause. Yeah. He yeah. knew how not to fill that pause, a, and sometimes you know the best questions are the ones that are not actually asked. They just hang there between him and his. Yeah, some people are desperate to, to fill the pause and then they reveal more about themselves than they would have done if he'd have just gone on with the next question. Yeah, that was, that was, I think, really, really part of the style and something he must have learned on the job. But also, I think it's a journalistic thing. And I, wherever we go on this, you can't get far away from the fact that that was his background. It was journalism. It wasn't documentary filmmaking. It wasn't a, a travelogues. These were journalism. Yeah, yeah, and that that's always... That is always bobbing up to the surface, isn't it, in all of this stuff? Yeah. You can't do any of that with us without the structure behind it. Let's fill out in some of those early blanks before we before we talk about the festival and, 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 and things. Because he worked on he didn't work for the picture post, he worked for Exchange uh, Exchange Ooh. Telegraph. Thank you. Um, yes. And so he did that for a while and he was obviously a print journalist. But going back to his b- before that, I mean he, he kind of came from an interesting family. He was born in he was born in Egypt. Um, in the early yeah. 20s and his father was a military was it was a military man and he lost him pretty early on they moved back to england and he was brought up by his mother and i felt that he has he 
had such a feminine, you might call it a feminine quality to his interviewing. I thought that was so, when I read that, it didn't surprise me for a second. He had such a sort of, for, for such a sort of smartly dressed, typical gent, as it were, he had such a feminine side of him. Yes, I mean, absolutely. And two things that, um, that, that Valerie, Alan's partner, also his uh, film photographer when he was uh, working, uh, Valerie observed two things which I think are very insightful about Alan's early days. One was his father being ill, quiet, be quiet, play quietly, uh, daddy's not very well, uh, is what made him a writer because it made him an astute observer. And you are absolutely right, I think, to pinpoint his quality, his interest. He always made a huge point of, of seeking out the woman's point of view on anything, which was very unusual for his era. And certainly that's that's what I felt. I felt um, coming along as a sort of, you know, on my clapped out old bike, you know, radio, flat shoes, uh, arriving with a big handbag full of recording equipment and all of that and dumping it down. He'd give me a, a glass of champagne and he would always take such an intelligent interest in what my journey had been like but a deep and penetrating interest he always managed to feel that whoever he was talking to was actually oh my goodness you know slightly more interesting than I realized you know (laughs) it was a wonderful skill and uh, I was very very lucky to work with somebody like that it was an extraordinary period of my life that's immensely precious and then to find out that he'd left this legacy People say, oh, you know, Alan, oh, he made a lot of wealth. Well, thank goodness he did, because, my golly, it's been put to good use now. I mean, it's funding documentaries from uh, emerging talent all over the globe uh, who would not otherwise get a crack at something that he felt he was very lucky to do. Mm. So let's talk about the Wickers. Let's talk about the charity. No better time to do it. Jane, has that got a guiding principle behind it, or is it what? What are the editorial concerns, if, if, if any? Yes, we have a very broad remit to shed new light on hitherto unseen or unknown worlds. So it could be when we've uh, commissioned a, a, a film made by two filmmakers from the Hazari community in central Afghanistan, but it could be the world going on inside your head. We've also commissioned a film about. Uh, Hermit, who had a knock on the head, forgot that he was in a relationship, went off into the wild and lived in the wild for 37 years until a young woman came and found him and persuaded him to let her film him for uh, several years. And it's a delightful film. You don't hear a lot about hermits anymore, do you? Perfect perfect lockdown film. (laughs) Maybe maybe we'll come to the London Film Festival. We're all hermits now, aren't we? So, and the, the, the expression that I got that I have never for, forgotten of what the Wickers World Foundation was designed to do, and this was all thanks to Valerie Kleeman, his, his partner, who made it happen after uh, acting on Alan's wishes after he, he died, um, was create something for the promulgation of curiosity and professionalism in broadcast documentary journalism. That's fabulous, isn't it? It's pretty good, yeah. 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 I think I might... How many many lines is that? It's brief. I'm trying to to say... Have you got some T-shirts printed? (laughs) (laughs) This is Britain, where those who describe themselves as fond of animals sometimes hunt them to death or spend their lives dominating a very small dog. 
where fire brigades are called to rescue kittens from trees, people refuse to eat eggs laid by battery hens, get up petitions for horse troughs, and any book about a gull or a duck, however stumbling and inane, is an automatic bestseller. Old age pensioners go hungry, delinquents swing their bicycle chains, drunken parents cripple their children, but we're not really outraged until someone throws stones at a cat. So you mentioned Michael Palin. He's going to be on stage at the, at the festival on the 7th of August at the BFI. So there's discussions, there's a, there's a double bill of films, or there's two, two days of films. That's right. So we've picked a, a film that exemplifies Alan as the consummate interviewer. Mm-hmm. And then we've picked a film that shows Alan as the pioneer. And we've got those films showing back to back in the afternoon on Saturday the 7th. And then at uh, 5.40, on stage, do you want to know that Michael Parkinson's going to be there? Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And Michael Palin (laughs) and John Coleshaw, because he's playing Alan in a specially commissioned play about Alan's early life. Audio play, audio play, yeah. Perfect. It's quite a talented brigade then. We'll see see you down the front. Yeah, if there's one thing I'd like to just finish with from my point of view, the one thing that makes Wicker stand out in the same way that Attenborough stands out, it doesn't matter how long they've been on air, they never lose their enthusiasm and they transfer that enthusiasm to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah it rubs off. It, it shines through the television screen. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. it's wonderful. It's been really wonderful researching this, actually, and familiarising myself with all, those, with, with all those great moments, great films, great interviews. It's such a wonderful, rich world. And Alan Wicker's films, Around Wicker's World, Money and Power, and The Lord is My Shepherd and He Knows I Am Gay, are being screened by BFI Southbank on the 7th of August under the title Welcome to Wicker's World. This will be followed by panel discussions, as Jane said, with all of that talented crew, including Michael Palin, etc. Um, visitors to the BFI Southbank can also explore an extensive new collection of 100 programmes from his six-decade career. Thank you both very much for your time today. It's been wonderful to dip our toes in the in the, the warm, mostly warm waters of Wicker's world. Um, Monocle on Culture was produced by Holly Fisher and I've been Robert Bound. We'll be back at the same time next week. For the time being, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.